Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thank you, Dennis. It's usually hard to live up to a, an introduction, and Dennis made it triply hard, so forgive me if I don't. Uh, I actually had not met Dennis until half an hour ago, but some months ago he got in touch with me and uh, told me what he was doing, what the organisation does, and what he had in mind for this uh, conference, and I was charmed by that, so much so that I'm here today, which is no small thing, because what I should be doing, what I was doing, is eating uh, goose liver in Budapest just a day ago. Uh, so it was a, a great draw card to be here. I'm delighted to have met Dennis and I'm delighted to meet you. But I should ex begin with a couple of warnings and, and perhaps apologies. First is not a warning, but pro probably a source of relief. I'm not going to sing. Secondly, not because, I mean all because, we just heard something lovely and I couldn't guarantee that. Secondly, uh, I might fall asleep bef during the talk long before... Even you do, and if so, please bear with me. I shouldn't, I almost am not here because I set my alarm clock dutifully when I arrived in last night, but I forgot to reset it from Warsaw time, and so at the moment you'll be pleased to know it's 3.30 a.m. <laughs> Finally, and perhaps more seriously, uh, I have just arrived from an intense, both fascinating and alarming, and for the same reasons, experience or period in Eastern Europe and before that in the United States. And so my head's back there, much of it, and what I do say will, I hope, relate to Australian affairs, but it won't be directly about matters here. And even if I hadn't just got off the plane, I'd do it this way in any event, because it seems to me that if one's looking back over 20 years or trying to look to the future, which of course none of us can do effectively, many of the things which most are likely to affect us for the next little while don't depend on us. It's hard sometimes in this provincial par paradise that we live in to keep that in mind, but I think it's true, it's unfortunately true perhaps, but the fact that it might be sad doesn't mean it won't exist. So, on that sombre note, let me begin. Dennis asked me to revisit some of the themes of my Boyer lectures, which were called then Between Fear and Hope, Hybrid Thoughts on Public Values. Uh, I had then, too, just come back from what was then a year in Central Europe, not as recently as this time, but pretty recently. And I, again, had come to what, in my wishy-washy way, ways, close to a decision well, I loved Australia and I was very grateful that my parents ended up here, uh, my focus, what I would write on, would be the extraordinary, unprecedented developments of the post-communist area of Europe, uh, the East. They fascinated me, they drew me, they moved me, and I had great hopes for them. Uh, and I wouldn't, I thought, write about Australia. And then I got back here at the end of 96 and early in 97 
I got the invitation to give the Boyer Lectures, which was at the same time delightful and alarming. It was alarming. That's not just polite talk. My wife immediately said, this is ridiculous, you can't do it. You're too young, which was even a stretch at that time. But, but anyway, after that backhanded compliment, I thought, well, still, I, I want to do it. I want to do it. But I had no idea what I would talk about. And I thought that though I found the developments in court arrangements in Bratislava, Budapest, Warsaw, Bucharest were fascinating. That small, of course elite, group of Australians who spend six, as it was then, successive Sunday afternoons listening to the Boyer Lectures was unlikely to be entranced with those things. So I really had no clue what to talk about. And the ABC, in its delicate way, uh, didn't want to help. They were terrific about how you should talk on radio, chattily, few stories slowly with pauses, but as for a topic, no, not, not for them. And I really didn't know what I would talk about. And then I was helped by the fortuitous fact that an unusual range of events started to happen in 1997 in Australia. First was the Bringing Them Home report, uh, which had an extraordinary impact on the uh, taking of children, Aboriginal children from their families over a long, long period of time. And then in April of that year, the birth of Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. And I thought, I mean, it's extraordinary that these things happened and that they had such a response at that time. I, I don't know, maybe you know of poorly bound government reports that are 700 pages long that sell out in two weeks. But it's not part of my lived experience and it happened to the Bringing Them Home report. And of course... There were major issues of what I call political morality, which is values in public life, that came to grip the country at that time. And I thought, well, if that's the case, I should try to learn something about them and try to say something about them. And that's what I did try to do in those lectures. Uh, tried not so much to answer problems. I'm nobody's policy advisor. I don't know any facts. Uh, but even if you knew facts, the, the controversies in that period and controversies again about migration, about refugees, etc., aren't primarily about what the facts are. We can get them in common. We can come to work out what the facts are. There'll be disagreements, but they're not the main thing. We have to work out what we think those facts mean, how to evaluate them, how to respond to, do, to them and what to do about them. And these aren't just matters you can look up in, a, in an encyclopedia. There are no experts on matters of value. And I'm not an expert either, but I've thought about it a bit, and I tried to frame for discussion of these issues some values which seem to me important and, and worth to bring into the discussion. And, and, and uh, that's what those lectures ought to do. I'm not going to go into the particular issues that I discussed then, they change. Some of them have ceased to be issues. Some of them have been submerged. When did you last year have a debate about stolen children? It, somehow it, 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 it disappeared. But the issues didn't disappear. And there are new issues, of course, and I'll say something a little about those at the end. What I'll try to do, if you don't mind this kind of public autobiography... They used to complain about Bertrand Russell that he used to conduct his education in public. He wrote so many books, he had so many wives, he had to keep, keep afloat, wives and children, he had to keep afloat. Well, I don't have so many wives, uh, but 
I, I was asked to revisit the theme, so perhaps I'll try to frame some of those themes. What were the values which seemed to me then worth thinking about and still seem to be worth thinking about, and what may have changed in our world to uh, reflect on them or to put them in a different light. And after 20 years, 20 years doesn't seem so long for a guy my age. I guess if you're 20, it seems quite a time. But a lot has happened in those 20 years. But on these particular values, I'm still attached to them. Uh, and I'll, I'll say why. I should mention that the program refers to the uh, conservative, liberal, Republican, communitarian, socialist, democratic, international, of which I'm the founding father. I don't have a spouse yet in this, but I think I am a little irritated, I should confess to Dennis, by his claim, or someone's claim in the, in the program, that the membership of my international hovers around one. It's not true. It's actually been increased by 100%, not a long time ago, and there are now two. And... It's not quite an international because the other guy's in Canberra and it's not quite a, a, a party because we had to negotiate terms and he only signed up to a few of my terms and added some of his. So his is the Republican, Communitarian, Socialist, Capitalist International. But we decided we had enough in common we could form a coalition. And, <laughs> all right, it's not yet international. I've got, to, I've got to admit that, but it's on the way. And I'll be saying something about that and why I think it's not just a joke, or not even a joke, but uh, an important insight is buried in that mass movement. Uh, but first, reflecting, I'm looking back on these 20 years, or on what I was trying to say then, I realise now, better than I did then, that I was fuelled or driven as much by allergies as by affinities. And first I'll say some of the thing about the allergies to the way we talk in public life, not you or you, but common talk. Uh, first the allergies, then the affinities, and then how some things look to me 20 years later. First the allergies. I have seven. Actually, I have asthma as well, but I won't talk about that. <laughs> These are ideological allergies, allergies to ways we talk about matters of public morality in, in our debates. So what we call debates, because a lot of times we're not debating, we're just shouting. But let's imagine that they're debates. What are some of the standard ways of conducting them which get up my nose, an appropriate thing for allergies? The first one is what I call uh, taking your values off the shelf. That's what most of us do, and it's we need to do it. We take a lot of our knowledge off the shelf, we take our values off the shelf. We may have been born yesterday, but the world wasn't. And as one great philosopher, Sir Karl Popper, once said, if we simply rely on what we've worked out in the course of our lives, then when we die, we'll be about where Adam was when he died. So, of course, we take a great deal of knowledge, of information, of our sense of loyalties, of our attachments, of our values from other people. We go with our tribe, with our... With our country, with our religion. And that's all well and good. In fact, it's necessary, it's indispensable, we couldn't do without it. But there come matters of controversy where we should try. It's not easy, it's not always successful, and it's not always that we don't end up in the right place, but we should try to re-examine some of the values that matter to us. Sometimes issues, 
spawn that. For example, the Stolen Children Report. Sometimes changes in social patterns and values spawn that. Think of feminism. Lots of people have lived honest and honourable lives for generations before feminism caused many people to think again about things which were just taken for granted. The gay movement is like that too. Uh, reflection at the moment about our treatment of refugees, if we have those reflections, all have the capacity to spawn us thinking again about the values that we typically take off the shelf. And I think that's a good thing, and I think that in moments of serious public controversy over matters of public value, we should be open to that, force ourselves to be open to that, because often our default, our reflex position is going to be just to think the way we thought, or the way the people around us think. The second, which goes along with off-the-shelf values, and is, I think, very striking in Australia, but it's striking all around the world, and in America, in Poland, where I've just been, in Hungary, where the communities are so profoundly polarised, us and them, it's very common, and that is what I call hunting in packs. That we know what our tribe thinks, our country thinks, our, our party, our religion, and we think that way too, and we're confident about that. And we know what our enemies are like, and we know what to think about them. Enemies is actually not an inappropriate word for that condition of thought. We don't have opponents, we don't have people we might disagree with on issues, we have enemies. And that's, it seems to me, an unhealthy way to begin. Now, there are enemies in the world, so should we, we should take the possibility seriously, but we shouldn't start off that way, it seems to me. There is a wonderfully clever definition of a nation as a group of people united by a mistaken idea of their past and a common hatred of their neighbours. That is a kind of macro definition or example of hunting in packs, and many people do it. We might, to come to, after thinking, come to think our pack got it right, and that's, we shouldn't resist that thought if it is our thought. But we should reflect on whether what we think, what we're passionate about, comes from our reflection on it or comes simply because that's the way we do things here. Thirdly, there's what I call the fork-in-the-road problem. My lectures were much inspired by the American baseball coach and great aphorist Yogi Berra. You'll know one or other of his aphorisms, the future ain't what it used to be. It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, it ain't over till it's over. Uh, he's a, a profound thinker. Uh, but the thought of his, which has inspired this third allergy, is when you reach a fork in the road, take it. It seems to me deep and wise advice, which we often avoid. We reach the fork in the road, we reach a choice between ethnic loyalty and civic engagement, or between realism and idealism, or between uh, shame and the, the and, and actually, I don't know where that one's going. Anyway, between things, and, and we feel we're forced to some, what I think are often false choices. We are reluctant to combine insights from one place to another place. I was so impressed by that, and it so infused those lectures, that when... Ten years later, or eight years later, uh, Black Ink published a book of my essays. We were looking for a title, and the wonderful editor of uh, Black Ink, publisher of Black Ink now, uh, Chris Fike, suggested, after reading this stuff, that the book be called... This was a serious suggestion. The Forking Road. <laughs> really. And I said, I don't know what language he speaks, and I don't know what his friends are like, 
But my friends would give that about three seconds before they tweaked the adjective slightly and I'd be in the mud. So it didn't become that, but it was about that. Eventually it was called civil passions, something which matters to me because it must sound to a lot of people as though people who are passionate about civility don't have much to be passionate about. But it seems to me that a society where relations are civil rather than hostile, suspicious, threatening, is not an altogether common social experience, and it's not a natural fact. It's an achievement which needs social support, institutional support, cultural support. When you get it, you should be passionate about it, and you should be passionate about trying to get it if you don't have it. And so it seems to me these two apparent opposites actually go well together. And more generally, I think... Often we're asked to choose between two things we might find congenial, but we're told, well, this one is the opposite of that one, conservatives, liberal, socialist, uh, liberal, uh, democratic, well, democratic, non-democratic, that's a real fork, don't choose that one, uh, just choose one side. But often we should think a little harder about how things which might both seem to us attractive, but to point in different directions, might be combined, and so that I advocate when you, well, I, I echo Yogi Berra, his wise advice that when you reach a fork in the road, you should think about whether to take it. My next allergy, next allergen, is demonization. It's common in political fights, particularly when they get hot, to demonize your opponent or the person of whom you speak. And there are demons in the world, but you shouldn't start with that presumption. You shouldn't start by assuming that you're on the side of the angels and they're on the side of the demons. That sort of assumption gives people Dutch courage for a fight. It might help you get, as it does help Trump, Donald Trump, who I understand the name has not been absent in the last day. It might help him get supporters to think that way, because who wants to be with demons? Who wants not to be with angels? But I think we should be reluctant to come to that conclusion. We should worry about whether people who we disagree with might have something to say. We should be open to that possibility. And the f whatever the next number is uh, of the allergies, it's the second last one, I know. I may have dropped some, I can't remember. Is depersonalization. That's common, it's a common trick. Uh, it's easier to ignore or to reject other people if you don't see them as quite people like you. I think that Peter Dutton knows about it, but he may not be able to articulate, articulate the principle, though he does practice the policy. And depersonalization is often called not seeing the humanity in another person, not seeing that if you saw that the other person whose interests you reject or ignore or don't take into account is a person like you, you would have to pause to concern yourself with their condition, that's something that with a lot of groups in the world, other groups find easier to do if they depersonalise them. Now depersonalising is a very common phenomenon, but it's not easy to analyse it. I mean, Peter Dutton doesn't think that refugees are horses or gazelles, he knows they're people in some sense, but there is a sense in which it's easier for him not to acknowledge the full significance of that fact. And a philosopher who has much influenced me, an Israeli philosopher, Avishai Margalit, who wrote a book called The Decent Society, where a decent society for him is one whose institutions don't humiliate people dependent upon them, 
he writes this about not seeing the, uh, a human in someone else. He says, it's, it's exceptional. It is exceptional to see human beings as non-human. Yet it's easy to avoid seeing a person at all. Overlooking the presence of the other is a recurrent theme in anti-colonialist literature of humiliation. The humiliation, humiliation of the native is expressed in perceptual terms as seeing through the native as if he were transparent rather than seeing him. What does it mean to see through someone? One important sense is connected with seeing as normal what it's morally wrong to see as such. Seeing something as normal means seeing it as something that can be taken for granted. It means seeing things as all right, as secure and stable. It's mixed up with our consciousness, in our consciousness, with the view that this is the way things are supposed to be. The normal allows us not to pay attention to details and to see our surroundings as familiar scenery that doesn't demand special examination, since it's assumed that things are the way they're supposed to be. Now, if given that we're a country of immigrants and refugees, it seems to me amazing that we can so easily speak so scathingly about the motivations of people who get here and want something. It doesn't mean that the problem is an easy one to solve, but it seems to me a significant fact made easier by the sort of seeing through that we commonly do. Which leads me to my last allergy of a different sort, to what I call sentimentalization. What I call, I can't even say it. To <laughs> sentimentalization. Often it's very well motivated, but it has the result that we see the people, our chosen, for example, victims, uh, we idealise them and we demonise their opponents. So the issues, again, seem to us easy. There's no problem with refugees. There is actually a serious problem of knowing, practical problem in some respects, in many respects, deep moral problem, what to do about the fact that there are so many mi million refugees in the world. These are, to use a term which I think was used in the programme, wicked problems, problems for which we don't have any immediate solution. And so sentimentalisation, even if went well-motivated, seems to me an inadequate response to the depth, the seriousness, the moral importance of some of the great problems which face us. And as I'll say in the third part of my talk, if I get to it, uh, there are several great problems which face us. Now, as I was on the plane last night, I realised that these seven allergies were actually one allergy, one big allergy. You notice the size of my nose. So, and that is to uh, polarisation. Again and again, if you read in uh, the United States or where I've been in Hungary or where I've been in, in Poland, one of the... I asked in Poland, I got there and I was in a, for an intensive few weeks and I said, look, I want to watch TV and radio as much as I can. Can you tell me what's a station that will give this point of view and what's a station that will give that point of view? The person I was talking to just took out a piece of paper at the table and she wrote on so one side 10 radio and television study stations she said you get nothing but the government's propaganda from that side which is uh, reminiscent of communist propaganda though it's politically from the opposite side now and on this side you get nothing but opposition to the government and I said God I can't think of a country certainly not my country where you could make such a list so easily and the fact that you can make such an list so easily is a sad fact about political relations in Poland at the moment. It breaks up families, breaks up old friendships, some of my own. And uh, in the United States, we've seen it's the, 
the same, in Hungary it's the same. In Turkey, it's the same plus blood and jail. In Russia, it's been the same for a very long time. It's pretty well always the same in Russia. So, these are the allergies, or that's the allergy. What about the affinities? Now I'm proud to introduce you and to recruit you to the conservative, liberal, communitarian, sorry, liberal, republican, communitarian, social, democratic, international. I think there's somebody set up here to take membership applications. The, pri the price is high, but the value is much, much higher. Now, it sounds an odd thing to do. I mean, we have conservatives are here and liberals are here. We don't know about republicans because that's, well, we have an Australian version, but philosophically that's a rather arcane, not well-known about movement. Communitarians, we can guess at. Why would anyone try to put this uh, melange? In Poland, they used to say you can make uh, fish soup out of an aquarium, but you can't easily make an aquarium out of fish soup. So why should I have tried to mangle up all these things because it seems to me that each of these represent the fruits of significant traditions of thinking about public affairs. And in each of those, I haven't added Nazism, in each of those there are deeply pondered and valuable reflections to be taken out. So why reject this one just because you're in this camp? This is the hunting and packs phenomenon. Why do that? Why not think? Well, maybe they've got something to tell us which would be bare reflection, be we're carried on the wave of our own group and we sometimes are simply in principle uh, rejecting of what might be got somewhere else. Uh, the, 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 the inspiration for the movement comes from a 1970 short essay by a great Polish philosopher, Leszek Kolkowski, great man and great philosopher, who wrote a short credo for, liberal, for conservative liberal socialism. And his argument was, in each of these traditions, there's something to be... Uh, there, there are riches to be garnered, and we shouldn't avoid them simply because we identify ourselves with some other branch. And uh, a lot of people think one should stop where he did, but I'm ambitious, and so there is this array. So, first of all, conservative. We often, nowadays, conservative has become a boo word. We associate it with strange creatures like Cory Bernardi or Janet Albrechton. But in fact, there are long and strong traditions of conservative reflection, particularly in times of tumult, great change, where conservatives often, if I can condense uh, several hundred years of conservative thought without remainder into this, Society is complex, things are hard, life is hard, you're not that smart, be careful. That's pretty well all of it. Uh, but it's important. Conservatives remind people that even if your intentions are pure, life is full of unintended consequences. So somehow you might try to think that when you do something which seems to you obviously the good thing to do, it may be trailing things that you didn't expect. So take care. These, in moments of great turmoil, the great conservative response to revolution was Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France in, at the end of the 18th century. There's some deep truth in this. In a, mo in a time of, which is our modern time, where for a long period of optimism we thought we could do anything, everything, uh, 
it's worth getting the conservative reminder. But that's, I think, not enough on its own for at least two reasons. Conservatives are people who say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But very often, they're not in a particularly strong position to work out whether it's broke or not. Because conservatives very often have a kind of natural, in intuitive respect for the traditions they're brought up in, which is a good thing to have in many cases, but it doesn't give you much critical purchase on... It works when these traditions are nice. But conservatives aren't always the best people to tell you if they're nice or nasty, because they just like them because they're in them. Which leads me to liberalism. Liberals have, I think, two specific characteristics which conservatives don't always have and that could be worthwhile to enter into the mix. One is liberals say uh, the great, one of the great early liberals, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who wrote a short essay called What is Enlightenment, said, what is enlightenment? Dare to think. That's, don't assume that Truths are there simply to be taken from authorities like churches, schools, uh, village elders and so on. Dare to think. And so liberals have been on the bandwagon of saying, whatever the arrangement, and even if you come to think it's a wonderful arrangement, first think about it. Be prepared to uh, subject it to criti critical scrutiny. But then liberals, of course, you wouldn't be surprised by the name, are devoted to substantive Values, one of them, central, is liberty. That's what they're about. They think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think many people here think liberty is a good thing. We don't think it's appropriate to be pushed around by somebody who says he knows how things ought to be. But there are many countries in the world who suffer under exactly that sort of regime. Many. And billions of people around the world who suffer under those regimes. So I think liberalism stands for a great value. Nowadays, it's often confused with what is called neoliberalism, which is uh, it's a complicated story, but it seems to me that neoliberalism, which is an economic doctrine about uh, the centre of economic action, about trying to push back the state, is a kind of, travesty may be too word, it's a caricature of the particular liberal value which seems to be so precious in public affairs, and that's liberty. It goes along with other values like tolerance, which not everybody has liked. It's not simply hypocrisy to be intolerant. In many cultures, for many centuries, tolerance, we know the truth. It's the truth of God. Why should we listen to these pagans or, or, or heretics or apostates? So to argue for liberty and for tolerance is to argue something. These aren't just natural things, and they don't just flourish naturally. So it seems to me that liberalism is important. It's important, too, because it's focused on what do you need for that, particularly institutionally, a central value for the for liberals, about which I've spent 30 years trying to work out the meaning, is the rule of law. And if anybody has questions about that, I'm happy to give an answer for about an hour and a half. But now I won't, and I'll move on. Liberalism thinks that we're better off, we are well off, when we're not interfered with against our will or without our permission by powerful others. Republicans, this tradition that I mention, thinks that too, but they push liberty a bit deeper. They say that for liberals, if an authority is not interfering with you, but is able to interfere with you whenever they like, then you're not yet free. You're still under domination. If a husband chooses not, out of his kindness, to beat his wife, then a Republican says she's not free, so long as he is in a position where he can beat his wife. If a, if a slave owner treats his slaves nicely, the slave is still unfree. 
until the situation is one where there aren't slaves and there aren't slave owners. I think that's a deep deepening of a liberal value. I think it goes along with the value which is celebrated in the book by Margalit I mentioned, non-humiliation. When I was trying for the Boyer lectures to come to terms, what did the disposition, what could it have meant, the dispossession of Aborigines, which I had to mug up about, it wasn't something I was an expert on. Well, obviously, we know land was taken, uh, people were forced into situations unlike any that they had known before, etc. But one thing which occurred to me from Margalit's book was the fact, quite apart from the material, tangible uh, indignities and harms they faced, was the harm of humiliation. You couldn't see it, you couldn't pick it up, but you were not living in your own world, in a world where you were seen as a person. At least that's how I imagined it, and that's why uh, Margalit's book had such an impact on me and why I'm open to the Republican tradition. Now, the Republicans are already moving us in a direction to taking care of the conditions around us. And those conditions include healthy communities. Liberalism is often attacked. I, I think it's right to value individual liberty, but it's often attacked for just taking individuals and their concerns seriously. And communitarians are ones which say, look, we live in families, we need them, we have communities, we need them, we also owe, owe responsibilities to our parents, to our children. How can you have a serious attempt to understand public values if you don't give any space or place to the significance of healthy communities. I agree with that. seems to be very important. It's a significant, at least, addition to liberalism, maybe critique of liberalism, and that's why the international includes communitarianism. But they should be liberal communities. That is, they should be communities which respect the liberty of individuals. Sometimes you can have too much community of the wrong sort. Nazis stressed communitarian value, the people. They had no space for liberal values. Or in a more benign but still tragic way, Romeo and Juliet both belonged to strong communities, different communities. If you were a Capulet, you couldn't marry a Montague, and that was the tragedy. They had no liberty in these communities. And so the communities in the international are first valued because we need communities, we need to strengthen communities, communities don't happen. There are, Syria has very few communities except those that are being shelled at the moment. Syria is not a community in any sense, nor is Afghanistan. There may be small communities or other communities all around, but many of those communities, if you found them, are not liberal communities. So the international advocates this pairing as well. Now, communitarians uh, stress conditions of a good life. And at its best, so did the socialist tradition. What seems to me the germ of wisdom in socialism was the insight and the insistence that while for some people life is a breeze, for other people it's a gale, and it's not dependent on them always, which it is. Some people are born into situations which privilege them. Think if you were born, is it Jared? Kushner, until people discovered that he had secret messages. Still, he was born to a certain level of wealth. Even his father going to jail didn't seem to put him off course. Uh, but not everybody is born there, and one's life course is going to be different. That is fundamental in the socialist tradition. It was fundamental in thinking about industrial workers in the 19th century. It's fundamental now in thinking about the millions of worldwide who are in some way disoriented, displaced, disconnected by uh, 
changes from globalisation and a whole range of post-industrial changes. I don't have any clever answers to these problems, but they are problems, and so one can gain some insight into their significance from the socialist tradition. And lastly, some of the worst regimes in the world have been socialist regimes. Communist regimes not only allowed no democracy within them, they killed millions and millions of their citizens, again and again in country after country. Nazis, Nazism, the name was nationalist socialist. So while I've insisted that the socialist tradition has key insights, uh, it has key dangers too, and it needs to be allied to democracy. Social democracy is the only sort of socialism which seems to me uh, acceptable because democracy, first of all, it's due to people that they have a, the possibility of participating in, in the affairs of their country and it protects people when they have that possibility. No one is so smart that if left to themselves, uh, they they can be relied on to do well. That's why we think of democracy. That's why we think of the rule of law. That's why we think of ways of channeling and tempering the exercise of power so it doesn't uh, depend on one Trump guy, for example. Just imagine that. Without some obscure court in Seattle, so-called court, according to Donald Trump, uh, how politi politics might be developing. It might still develop in the United States. Okay, here's two. Now the present. How does this look? How do these values, which I still believe in, look to me now? I can't give you a balance sheet. It varies from country to country, stage to stage. And I think that in many respects, Australia is privileged both by its distance from the world and by certain virtues which are institutionalised in this country. But we're subject to a range of threats of a sort which I certainly didn't predict. Uh, the program flattered me... I accepted it, uh, by saying that, if I've got it here, that I could see back in 1997 where Australia was pointing. There couldn't be, with great respect, anything further from the truth. If I can just, write, just read, because I only wrote it on the plane last night, this part, and I don't, it's not in my head yet. I warned of dangers, but I didn't know what was likely to happen, and I certainly had no idea... nor that the economic security of much of the world would be threatened by the great financial crisis, that the whole world would come to fa face unprecedented disenchantment and fatigue with democracy, that virtually every country in the world would need to confront the wicked problem, wicked as much morally as practically, about of what to do about refugees, that the European project, so hopeful in 1997 when I wrote the lectures, so newly and optimistically expanded in 2004 when 10 new countries were added to the EU, would now seem like some aged, incontinent invalid with a glorious past and a future threatened on every side. That what seemed to be a fruitful engagement between Russia and the West would fall into Cold War-style rivalry between an old-style Russian gangster and an ignorant, narcissistic screwball uh, as the two major contestants. Uh, that 
China, for all its economic successes, would become extremely repressive at home and ambitious abroad. That the experiments in developing democracy and the rule of the law that in the part of the world that I'm particularly focused on, post-communist Europe, would begin to founder pretty soon and is foundering as we speak. That populism would threaten to trump civilised politics in country after country. Trump is an apt word here and not a happy one. In fact, I think they're terrible threats to all the values I've commended, and I didn't see them coming. Uh, I was also slow on climate change, just as another incidental. Uh, so my scorecard as a prophet is zero. <laughs> Nevertheless, let me prophesy. Uh, I won't prophesy. I won't prophesy, but I will try to suggest, you know the old phrase, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I think the price of every value that I've, I've subscribed to is eternal vigilance. So let me just mention where some of the threats that seem to me around uh, might come from. First, conservatism. A lot of the people around the world who call themselves conservative aren't that, at least in two senses. First of all, they don't have brakes. Conservatism was a, was a doctrine which said brakes are important. Your intentions are important, but having brakes, having some institutionalised ways of stopping the train moving is enormously important. But many of these new conservatives, as they're called, in Hungary, where I was yesterday, in Warsaw, where I was a few days before, in Russia all the time, in Turkey, and, if given his way, in the United States, and, and institutionally also in China, are ones which don't recognise the need for breaks on power. So they're not conservative in that sense. And secondly, too, there's a difference between conservatism and reaction. Conservatives want to conserve the good in what they have around them. Reactionaries demand that we go back to what is usually a mythical state before the rot set in, which they're going to lead us back to. And a lot of populists are exactly like that. That is central populism. It's been taken over by elites. It's, it's uh, been uh, decomposed by globalisation, etc. We've got to get back to America, Australia, Hungary, Poland, what they were and should be. These are threatening moves. And they're not conservative moves, whatever label they get under. Liberalism similarly, similarly is hugely under threat in many countries in the world. Uh, there was a famous article some years ago by an American journalist which noted that democracies are flourishing all over the world in the sense that uh, nowadays governments get elected, but they were illiberal democracies. That as soon as they were elected, the governments went after the press, went after the uh, courts, went after uh, independent organisations. And that's happening in lots of places. These are illiberal, I don't think it's right to call them democracies, but they are illiberal tendencies, which are huge in the world. And once upon a time, Europe was a kind of centre of liberal opposition. And we've had some... Uh, relief in the last few months. In France, it wasn't the populist who won. In Holland, it wasn't the populist who won. We're hoping, or I'm hoping, that in Germany shortly it won't be the populist who wins. But 50% of the French electorate didn't vote for anyone who's going to be in power. That doesn't promise an easy ride. So liberalism is under some threat. The lack of domination asked for by Republicans is not something that is, is, is fresh in the ears of people who are fomenting political, religious and ethnic rivalries in many parts of the world, including going to wars in many parts of the world. 
You know more about community than I do, and I think one thing to keep in mind is how, quite apart from whatever it is that you find valuable in communities, against these sorts of tendencies, communities are all important. There is a kind of uh, derailing or uncoupling now of political leadership from a lot of where people live. People are disconnected from each other. They're disconnected from the political caravan which goes its way and they go their way. And this is an enormously unhealthy state of affairs which a lot of politicians have no interest in changing. But people should have an interest in changing them. One, one of the reasons I hopped on the plane was I was so uh, taken with Dennis's account of what it is that you do and what his organisation does. And I think it's enormously important. Uh, a lot of people, not in Australia because of compulsory voting, but in a lot of parts of the world, are so disenchanted they simply don't, don't vote, which again plays into the hands of those people who can bring out the vote of their loyal subjects. I think that this is a major issue. But communities have a choice. They have many choices. One choice is whether they're going to be inclusive, civil in recruitment, or exclusive, ethnic, religious, tribal, uh, political in their recruitment. That is a choice, and people make it differently all over the world, and I would advocate, because it's the only thing which will get you into the international, which you're about to join, that it be a liberal, inclusive uh, community rather than an exclusive one, us against them. Socialist ideal has not done well recently. Uh, it came as a shock to many people when the French economist Thomas Piketty published his book on inequality the last couple of years to discover how many, what a huge proportion of people were now, in terms of equality, in a much worse position than they were, that the fates of many millions of people in the United States, in Europe, in America, and oh, sorry, I've said America, many parts of the world, uh, are not going to be as healthy as their, as their parents were, and so on. This is a, a great difficulty that we face. It's much easier to, to... And finally, democracy. Well, because it's not liberal democracy that... Sorry. Democracy is still... It's subject to, to dangers. That is, a lot of people don't much like liberal democracy. A lot of people who get elected as populists are hostile to it. But it also has its own crises of sorts which I really don't understand. And one of the things most worrying, it seems to me, about this litany of woes that I'm, I'm pouring out is I don't know who understands it. There was a time, and I think 97 was one, where you thought, well, we had stable political parties, we had strong economic growth, communism had collapsed, that was nice for people of my sort. Uh, and now, my parents were refugees in the 30s and 40s, and so a sort of frame for a lot of what I've thought about over, over my life has been that period, the 30... I'm not that old. But it was there in my memory. I never thought of it, as I do now, as there in my present. I never thought that we might be in a period in world history which has many analogies to the 1930s. Nobody knows quite what the crisis of democracies are about, why they're happening now. Nobody knows why upstart uh, nobodies suddenly come into power in many countries in the world and nobody knows what to do about the sort of economic derailing that, and no one predicted it. The people who know were wise five minutes after the event, but no one was very clever before the event. And this is what is around. Now the good news in that is just as we couldn't predict the bad things, 
we may be equally bad at predicting the good things. I thought that's true. And I don't mean this, as it must sound, but after all, I'm jet lagged, to be a kind of cancel of sadness and despair. I don't mean that at all. People have been frequently surprised in a very good way by things they didn't seem coming. The end of communism in Europe was one such thing. There was no one who was smart about that till it happened. So there are good things perhaps awaiting us, but uh, I don't see them. Thank you very much. Is that on? Yep, great. We'll take some questions. Um, one thing, though, I think you've got number three recruit on the thing, but you had me at hello, actually. So um, We're going up 100% a day. <laughs> Over there, Amy. Hi, uh, Professor. That was an amazing speech, first of all. Thank you. Um, so you were talking about going against the tendencies that already exist um, in society and, and how communities are important. Uh, what are some steps that you would suggest as members of the community and as members of councils um, that, that we could take in terms of moving in that way without having to directly influence, for example, the political scene and things like that? One sort of amendment I would say, I don't say go against. Reflection, critical reflection on your opinions might come up with you saying, this is why I believe, this is what was good with, with the beliefs I had. We should never, I think, exclude that possibility in principle. I mean, if we're living in a horrible place, we wake up to it, but not in principle. People often pride themselves on being contrarian. I don't think that's smart. I think that it's smart to try to think about things which you hear around them, which you also share. Why do I think that? What is it which makes that so obvious to me? That can often be an uncomfortable thought psychologically uncomfortable, socially uncomfortable. But I think it's terribly, terribly important to try to rethink it. Sometimes you'll find, I have this now in Poland, one of my closest friends, I mean, I'm here, but, but he, I, I take an interest. One of my closest friends for 30 years, uh, a man I love, I mean, not in that way, but, um, but, but yes, I love him. I mean, he's, he's a deep, deep friend. I admire his character, I admire everything. He now supports a government which I think is loathsome. That's not a very unpolarizing word, I know, but anyway, uh, I, sorry, I forgot to say, could I say it here? What I was saying about allergies, what I'm saying generally, might sound terribly preachy, and I'm sorry if it does, but also I'm sorry, it might sound as though I was assuming some lofty position and saying, you poor guys, if you were like me. No, an allergy, to ideological allergy, often comes most powerfully from recognising something you don't like that you see outside, that you recognise in yourself. And the seven things to which I identified my own allergy was an identification not of superiority but vulnerability. I am vulnerable to have been to each of those uh, seven. Or, since I like a drink, uh, you can take this as being a kind of large AA meeting, and I've just made my confession of temptation and, and frailty. So I don't mean, I don't have, I've been, often, I've just said I loathe this government. I shouldn't say that. Well, actually, I should because they're loathsome, but. Uh, <laughs> so this mate of mine, who I really am fond of, we've been through a lot together and so on, he supports them. 
And part of my puzzle is not to do what it's so easy to do, because in Poland there are a lot of people who instinctively I'd say, well, they're not like me. So I just dismiss them. It's to think, how does a guy who I know very, very well, who has views antithetical to mine on this issue in something which I think is terribly important, how could that be? And I haven't understood it, but I've been obsessed with... Oh, not obsessed, it's too strong. I've been worrying about it for some long time. So one is, on the one hand, ask yourself, why am I thinking this way, particularly in matters of heat? Why do I find it so easy to applaud one side and then... But another, if you have, as we often have, in situations where politics polarise, people that we know well, that we think well of, and we discover are thinking very differently from us, how could that be? Is it always likely to be the case that I'm so smart and they're so wrong? And maybe not. If you're lucky, maybe, but we're not always so lucky. Other questions? Hands up. Vin and Amy. Hi. Thank you very much. Sorry. Where are we? Just over, over here. Down the back. Ah, sorry. Yes. Um, I just wanted to ask, you spoke about disenfranchisement in the political process and I have seen it suggested that, especially with younger voters, that it could be caused by what's been called, called corporate democracy. So the influence that, you know, all these large international corporations are having on the political process. I was just wondering whether you put much stock in that idea. Look, I don't, one of the sort of strange pathologies of being on a podium is that you feel you should know the answer to every question. Because <laughs> otherwise, why am I here? And why am I answering and you're asking? Uh, clearly, uh, there are, as there always have been, large and structural, that is, it's not accidental, it's not random, differences in power and influence of uh, between, uh, between groups, between uh, types of institutions and so on. It's not obvious to me that, uh, maybe it is, in Australia, corporate corporations are so much more powerful than they once were, or at least so much more that that would explain the disaffection here. But obviously it will contribute to it, as it does in many countries where people vote or don't vote because they say their vote makes no difference to what goes on. In particular, it makes no difference to their condition. And that's how many people have felt in a situation of uh, relative decline in, in economies. I think, I mean, what you're saying is a doubly empirical question. That is, one is, are they more powerful, more influential now than before? Secondly, how do we relate that to people's responses to it? There are many countries where that is said. Uh, again, in Eastern Europe it's said. Uh, Trump said it all the time. But his recipe was to get more of these people into the tent, more people like him, or with, with uh, less shady records even. I mean, not even. Uh, so, look, I think it's worth investigating. I'm sure there are many people who believe it. It's, it I think that when I said that Neoliberalism is a caricature of liberalism. I mean it not just as a kind of... See how angry I was? Not just as a, a kind of dismissal 
by name, as often happens with neoliberals. But what we call neoliberals have been very confident that what they do for the economy is good for all of us. And I have two worries about that. One is, in one of the things I look at is neoliberal, sorry, is rule of law promotion in post, I'm an expert on screwed up countries, post screwed up countries, and about to be screwed up countries. So <laughs> it gives me a lot of terrain. And I watch uh, rule of law promotion movements, which are a big business, billions of dollars, lots of people around the world. And many of them, arose in the last 20 or 30 years because neoliberal uh, thought has persuaded them that economies will only develop if contracts are secure, property is secure, etc. And I've often asked them, what if you weren't persuaded of that? Would that mean that for you the rule of law didn't count because it still counts for me for the reasons I've given here? And the answer to that is equivocal. So first of all, I think there's been too much uh, seeing everything as an economic issue. But secondly, I'm not an economist, and uh, that's not a point worth making, but it is a confession. I don't understand economics at all. But a lot of these sorts of disaffection have happened on their watch, and I think that that's uh, something to be taken into account, um, to be taken into account. One, one question over here, Amy. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I was thinking about uh, the word you used was reactionary, so the, the Trumps of the world, and I think so much about, you know, there's allegations of corruption and collusion and, and uh, you know, sexual assault on women, and he's literally shoving leaders off world stages so he can get to the front of the photos. And uh, yet none of these things, and you could say the same with Hanson here and all the allegations against her, seem to have any dent in their popularity, in their supporter base. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on why supporters of people like Trump seem to not... seem to, The standards seem to be so low that even basic notions of decency and civility don't seem to affect their support for them. I was just wondering what your thoughts sure. on that are. It's, uh, I am wondering, but I've tried... Uh, two days ago, I was in an extraordinary lecture in Budapest on uh, how democracies die by an American political scientist... Stephen Holmes. The next day, the Foreign Affairs, American International Relations uh, magazine, sends an email newsletter, not in response to this, but it was just a coincidence, why democracies aren't dying. Now, who's got it right? I don't know, but that, that, that is the issue. An issue is a worrying development. I think we use, just as we bandy words like neoliberalism, or I did, uh, a word really to be bandied is populism. And unfortunately, we don't have a handle on it. There are a couple of things about populism which seem to be very persuasive at the moment. One is populism, populists all over the world all target similar enemies, elites who are said to be corrupted, who are said to be, have no connection with the people whatsoever. They themselves speak for the people but they speak for the people in a very particular way. That is, not everybody who votes, but everybody who votes for them. They're the real people. In Poland, the, it's an interesting thing, the man who rules Poland has no official position. He runs the country, but he's not president, he's not prime minister, he's head of the, uh, the leading party, but he has no official position. So when people say that these guys might be, after they fall, might be put before some court or other, he can't because he has no public function. Anyway, he talks about polls of a lesser, lesser sort, of a worse category. So populists unite people 
in this sense that they are the, the people against whom people who disagree uh, are, are outside, even though they're part of the country. That, I should have said, is the reason why these allergies I mentioned aren't purely abstract. It seems to me that... Uh, this doesn't answer your question, but it characterises the field, I think, a little. We're in a period where uh, it is available and is exploited and has consequence to think of anyone who opposes you as, in some way, a lesser being, or, or so de desperately wrong that you don't have to take account of it. All my allergies are to that sort of thinking, and populists excel at pushing that sort of thinking. Um, once you have that conviction, reasoning isn't part of the story. And so we're constantly surprised. How can this low-grade, high-paid crook, who has bankrupted himself out of emergencies time after time, who swindled and lied without stop, not be uh, called out more effectively than he is? So we're talking about the same phenomenon, but I think... Uh, the difficulty we have is, is any deep and thoroughgoing explanation of why this, which is part of the present predicament, which worries me a lot, is happening to us now. See, and I think it's multi-factor. I think that this... Uh, we're not getting poorer. In Poland, people have never lived so well, ever. But who knows that? Not everyone lives so well. That's a problem. So there are economic causes, and there is the kind of... Uh, the rise in inequality, but not in poverty in the Western world. But there is a sense, I think, of disorientation and confusion, which is very widespread. For reasons which I can only uh, guess at, people don't, or, or many people, don't have any confidence that the world or their part of the world is moving in a direction that is good for them. Uh, and I've had, I've, I've sort of gestured at trying to explain that in post-communist countries, and I have a story about that which has to do with the shallowness of new institutions in countries where they were unfamiliar. It's a long story, and I won't try it now, but that story can't explain France, it can't explain America, it can't explain Brexit. So I think the answer, it's a super question to which I've given a sub Super, well, no answer. But it is the question of our time. It is the question of our time. I mean, that is what people are trying, not just theoretically trying to puzzle, but if you're the head of a, of a conventional party, neither of which in France even got to the polls. They were both wiped out. If you're the head of a conventional party which has to go behind President Trump, though you hate him, which most of the Republicans do. If you're the leader of two uh, contesting parties here, in whose leadership nobody seems to find any inspiration, then you've got a problem which is not just personal but structural. And uh, that's not an answer, but it's a sort of... That's where the... Uh, one thing is also not an answer, but it's something which strikes me again and again. seems to me that for reasons which must differ from place to place, many mainstream politicians for some time have thought their job is administration, not value leadership. 
They've just thought ours is to run the show. I don't like to say it, but it seemed to me that whatever she thought to herself, Julia Gillard was like that in public. Everybody I spoke to in, in Canberra who dealt with her said that she's a phenomenal manager. Clever, attentive, gets the job done, got a lot of stuff through. But in public, it was all cliches. In fact, I can't remember a non-cliche leader for a long, long time, except maybe Trump. Because the populists, for all their faults, and there are many more than I've even begun to, they have values. And I think one of the great uh, dangers is to leave the value part of things to them. That's why it's, I'm uh, genuinely so concerned that meetings like this and people like you take, take your job seriously in this larger sense because leaders who don't have to deal with questioning populations, don't have to give reasons for what they do, very quickly, very often cease to have reasons for what they do. And that's a bad situation. And it's, uh, the people dependent on them for their position, other politicians, are not going to remind them of that, and that's what you do. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.